Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18 as we continue in our series in Genesis. This morning we will look at just the first 15 verses of Genesis 18. Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, But you did laugh. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would work through this, your word, in the hearts of your people uh, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, uh, Adidas came up with uh, an, an ad, a, a marketing campaign, a slogan. Um, you're all familiar with the phrase, nothing is impossible. Um, parents, you sometimes may say that to your kids when they're trying to learn new math stuff. Uh, when they're practicing piano, oh, this is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Or, or coaches say that to their players. You, you can beat these people. It's not, trust me, nothing is Impossible. Well, Adidas decided they could um, improve the slogan by turning it around. Instead of nothing is impossible, their slogan became impossible is nothing. We can so conquer what you think is impossible that it's like nothing to us. This whole passage, the passage we just read at the beginning of chapter 18 is all about nothing being impossible, or for that matter, the impossible being nothing for God. 
Abraham is sitting in his tent door. It's, it's the heat of the day, we're told in verse 1. It's siesta time. It's the time of day when you do what you can in that hot, dry, arid land to find shade, uh, to catch a breeze, to try to rest, to cool off. You do whatever you can to, to get out of the heat. And so he's, he's resting in this, the doorway of his tent. In fact, for that matter, he may actually still be recovering from his uh, procedure that he had in, at the end of chapter 17. There's really no time lapse between chapter 17 and 18. Chapter 16 ends and you're told how old Abraham is. He was 86. Chapter 17 begins, and you're told how old Abraham is. He was 99. There's no time lapse from 17 to 18. He's resting, he's staying out of the heat, and he's probably within a day or two or three uh, of having been circumcised, and so he's kind of still taking it easy as well. And Suddenly there are three men standing there, uh, before him, okay, they're not right directly in front of him because he, he runs to them. He hops up and runs out to meet them. Not entirely certain, you know, when Abraham realized who they, they were. Uh, what really matters, though, is do we know who these three men are? There are those people who will say, well, yeah, it's the Father, it's the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit. It's the three persons of the Godhead. So that's of, of course that's who showed up to Abraham. There are two problems with that. One problem is you never ever see the Father or the Spirit in human form on earth. You never see them take human flesh. It's always the Son uh, who appears as a man on the earth. The other problem with that idea, actually, we find at the beginning of chapter 19. 19 begins with, The two angels came to Sodom. Two of the three men are angels. They went on. At the end of our passage, we stopped at verse 15. But in verse 16, the two angels continue on towards Sodom. And the third person stops and and has this conversation with Abraham. And we're told throughout verse, verse 1, the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham. We're told in verse 10 that it's the Lord who spoke. We're told in verse 17 further down that's the Lord speaking to Abraham and you'll notice you're going to get tired of me saying it. Lord is in all caps. It's Yahweh. So Abraham is is entertaining Yahweh and two angels in his house. That's the setting, that's the the context. Those are the the three men that have now appeared before Abraham. And you see his reaction in verse 3. He hops up and runs to them and and bows low to the ground and says, Look, y'all stop and hang out with me for a little bit. It's the hot part of the day. You need to rest. Let me feed you. Let me wash you. He offers them hospitality. He invites them to, to stick around. For a bit. Last summer, we spent uh, three weeks or so, Scotland, Ireland, um, doing some family vacation. 
our, our oldest had finished high school, heading off to college, and wanted to see the highlands of Scotland, so we added some stuff to it. We were in this border town of Jedburgh. I uh, actually happened to be there in God's providence at their greatest uh, festival of the year. And Nancy, because Nancy stopped to talk to this stranger with two dogs, Nancy managed to uh, procure for us an invitation to tea at this couple's house. Bob and Barb. Um, tea. They were precise. It'll be at 4, 4.30, whatever the time was. It's usually just tea and maybe some cookies or just a little something. When we got to their house, they had been to the grocery store. They had tea cakes and scones, I think a couple of different kinds of scones. They had cookies, they had jam, they had clotted cream, and I'm pretty sure they had a couple of different kinds of tea. They had kind of gone overboard. In fact, one package of these amazing chocolate cakes, they had bought just for us so that we could take them with us while we were gone. Now, they didn't, they didn't run out into the backyard and, and slaughter a calf. That would have been ridiculous. But they very clearly went above and beyond what I would have thought normal tea. It was, it was hospitality tea for these foreigners. Let's introduce them to our culture. Let's introduce them to the things that we do. Let's introduce them to life in Scotland. Abraham invites these men in. They've been traveling. And he offers them food and and rest. He urges them to stay. You'll notice he, he, he almost sounds like he begs. If you, if you read his language, he almost says, look, let a little water be brought, wash your feet, rest yourself. He almost sounds like he's begging. I don't think that the begging is really for them. I think they were always going to stop and eat with Abraham, and we'll see that in just a few minutes. I think the begging is more for him And for us, it's for his own good and for our good. Abraham is quick to to lavish great, over-the-top hospitality on these weary travelers. Notice what he offers them. Look at what he he gives them. First, let let a bowl of water be brought. You're there's no indication of animals, so they're walking. It's dry and dusty. It's the hot part of the day. Abraham's trying to get out of the sun and they're out walking in it. So they're sweaty and dirty and grimy. Let me get you a bowl of water so that you can, you can wash yourself. You can wash your hands. You can wash your face. You can wash your feet. You can clean yourself up. He offers them a chance to wash. Notice he also offers them a chance to find shade and rest. Rest yourselves under the tree, it'll provide you shade. You can take the load off, if you will. You can go and have a, have a set a spell and relax and gain your strength for the rest of your journey. He offers them food, verse 5. Uh, let me get a, a morsel of bread. You can tell Abraham's southern. Um... He's real sort of apologetic about what he offers. It's just a little something. It's, it's no big deal. I promise it, 
It won't cost me a dime. It's the easiest thing. It's just a little morsel of bread. I mean, it, it'll be nothing. Just look, just have a seat and I'll just get you a little more, just a little something to, to fill your stomach, to give you a little strength and energy. That's not what he does. He, he gives far more than that. As soon as they say, yeah, do what you've said, he goes running into the tent. And he doesn't bring a, a morsel of bread. He brings loaves and loaves of bread. In fact, he, he runs to Sarah and says, three seahs of flour. One sea is seven quarts. That's 21 quarts of That's four and a quarter gallons of flour. That's a big morsel of bread. He's gone kind of over the top. He offers a morsel of bread, but as soon as he can, he, he, he provides them this huge cake and he runs in and has a calf slaughtered. Uh, one whole calf for three people? Veal cutlets for days? It's, it's entirely more than they need. And you notice in verse 8 that he stands by while they ate. He's, he's ready. He's got the pitcher of water ready. He's got milk ready. He's got seconds ready. Oh, you need more to drink? Here, let me pour it for you. Oh, you need to refill your plate? Here, I've got that. You stay there. I'll take care of it. It's a, a picture of hospitality. It's a picture of, of, quite honestly, the way you and I should be treating each other and should be treating fellow travelers. He shows them just this lavish welcome, lavish above and beyond hospitality. I think it was John Calvin who suggested that hotels were the worst thing that could ever be thought of. Because it meant travelers had a place to stay without the church being the church to them. It robbed the church of the opportunity to serve travelers because they could take care of their own lodging, their own place to stay, and, and never had to impose on their brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me make two applications from this first half of this passage. First is this. Are you prepared with a, a moment's notice, with no warning whatsoever, when strangers suddenly show up in your midst, whether here at Grace Covenant on Sunday morning or cross paths at some point during the week, are you ready to show them that kind of hospitality? Well, I don't, I don't really have enough food. I don't have anything uh, prepared. My house isn't clean. I really, this is a horribly inconvenient time. Uh, I wasn't ready. I mean, if I had prepared, if I'd known they were coming, then I could have been prepared. And then a calf. Three seeds, 21 quarts of flour, milk, cakes, all of it unloaded on these travelers by Abraham simply because he wanted to show them hospitality. 
You know, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this. At the beginning of, of Hebrews chapter 13, uh, it begins like this. Let brotherly, brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I don't think that that verse means to say that when you entertain people, you never know when you might be entertaining an angel. I don't think that this verse is normative for that. He's looking back at Abraham. He's looking back at Genesis 18 and saying, show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality because there was this time when this God did this and he actually had Yahweh and two angels in his tent eating his food. Are we prepared to show this kind of hospitality to strangers? There's a second application, and I, I almost hesitate to make it because it's so tangential to the rest of the passage and the aim of this context, but it's still worth making because just in the last couple of weeks we pointed out that Peter calls this marriage between Abraham and Sarah a model marriage. That was in the passage after Abraham had given his wife Sarah to an Egyptian, and Sarah had given her husband Abraham to another Egyptian. And yet Peter still says this is a model marriage. Notice their interaction in verse 6. Abraham runs into the tent. If you come into my house and talk to me like this, you're not going to get this reaction. I mean, listen to how the staccato, short, quick, imperative kind of language and, and tone of voice that Abraham uses. And he runs in the tent and says, Sarah, quick, three seeds of flour, knead it, make cakes, and he's out the door. I'm going to go, whoa, 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 time out, hold on, come back. You've got to give me more than that you got to tell me I need a lot more reason to go 21 quarts of flour because you ran in and said, do it. And yet, 1 Peter 3, in the midst of praising wives for putting on the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, wives who adorn themselves with submission to their own husbands, Sarah gets recognized. Sarah gets credit. We're told that she is, is the model of responses. She obeyed Abraham, even calling him Lord. Men, I'm not suggesting you now instruct your wives to call you Lord. That's not the point. But we see several times throughout their marriage, times when Sarah says, yes, Abraham, and he, she, she obeys it. She trusts him in this setting. There has to be some reason for this outrageous demand. I'm just going to go with it and I'll figure it out later. They're a model for hospitality. And Peter, in looking back at this passage, sets up Sarah as a model submissive wife. But this chapter isn't about... It's not about hospitality. 
And it's certainly not about roles in, in, in the marriage relationship, what the husband and wife are supposed to be doing within the marriage relationship. That's how Peter uses this as an illustration, but this is not about marriage by any stretch. In fact, the first eight verses are really just a, a prelude for the aim of the passage itself. That's why I think these three men intended to eat with Abraham all along. When you put people at your table, and certainly in this culture, in Abraham's culture, when you gather people around your dining room table, that's as, as, as intimate and as unifying an event as you can experience with anyone who's not your spouse. It's, it's a sign of... of of unity and of love and of care and of trust and of welcoming. These men, quite honestly, are actually eating a covenant meal with Abraham and Sarah. They're, they're celebrating this intimate covenant relationship. Without, that's why throughout the passage, God every single time is Yahweh. He's that covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. They came to eat with them. They weren't going to say, no, no, Abraham, we're, we're, going to, we're fine, we're just going to keep on going. They, were, they came to eat. They came to celebrate this meal. They came so that they could have the interaction of the second half of this passage. The Lord's sitting and eating. Sarah is hiding. She's, we're told she's behind him. He can't see her. He's sitting with his back to the tent. She's inside the tent, kind of eavesdropping on the meal, eavesdropping on the conversation, listening in on what uh, the Lord is saying to Abraham. And he asks, where is Sarah, your wife? He knew her name. He gave it to her. He gave it to her just in the last chapter. He just, he just changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham. He just changed Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah. Of course he knows her name. Of course he, he knows she's there. Of course he knows exactly who he's, he's eating with. Where is Sarah, your wife? And, and Abraham responds, well, she's back in the tent, verse 9. And then Sarah heard the most amazing, the most astounding, and quite honestly, the most ridiculous thing she had probably ever heard in her entire life. Yahweh says, about a year from now, I'm coming back. And Sarah's going to have a son. One of the things I love about Winnie the Pooh is that in the books and in the, the, the movies, the shows, is there's no fourth wall. You know that wall between the characters and the audience? There's no fourth wall. The narrator is in and out of the book all the time. In Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, Tigger gets stuck at the top of a tree. And, and the narrator's talking and Tigger sort of looks out and says, well, who are you? He says, well, I'm the narrator. And Pooh says, well, then narrate me down from here. You love when the narrator sort of 
is retelling the story and recounting the events and then, then goes, then sort of, you know, it's like reading a play and it says narrator, colon, and then this is his line. Well, Moses inserts himself. His, he inserts his own little narrator. He breaks the fourth wall for us in this passage. Because in verse 11, at the end of 10 and, the, and verse 11, it's, it's Moses. The narrator has, has paused the quote to insert his own comments and to prepare us for what we're going to hear in verse 12. Abraham, I mean, Moses warns us. Now, reader, you need to understand. You need to understand this about Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, well, they're both old. They're both advanced in years. That's like saying old, old. So they're both old and advanced in years. See, old is by definition advanced in years. And advanced in years is by definition old. So when you're old and advanced in years, you're really old. Oh, and by the way, Sarah's monthly cycle is way back in her past. That's over. That's gone. That's, that's, that's in her rearview mirror. Moses warns us for what Sarah is about to say. Ladies, you're, you're 90 years old. Work with me. You're not. None of you. None, no, no one in this room is 90. You're 90 years old. And someone comes along and says to you, hey, I'll be back in a year. You'll be holding an infant son. It'll be yours. How would you react? Probably the way you're reacting now. The eyebrows are all up, the smirk on the face, like, yeah, right. Like that, that's it is by far the most ridiculous thing you would have ever heard in your entire life. It is well, it's impossible. Scientifically, biologically physiologically, anatomically, naturally, it all says, Jeff, have you, ever, have you ever had any biology classes? Clearly not. Sarah laughed. Sarah laughs at what she hears outside the tent. I'm, I'll be back, Yahweh says, I'll be back in a year and, and, and she will have a son. So, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself. I'm worn up. I'm worn out. I'm dried up. I'm all used up. I'm too old for that. Am I really at this age going to have that pleasure? Am I really at this age going to have that joy? It's impossible, right? There's no earthly way this could ever happen. It's absolutely impossible. I don't know if you've noticed or not. God really likes impossible. That was our New Testament reading a few minutes ago. We took these, this selection of verses from Luke 1. Why? Because in every single one of them, somebody looked at God and said, you can't do that. 
That's not possible. Zechariah said, but, but, but angel, we're old. Elizabeth said, oh, but angel, we're old. Mary said, I'm too young. You notice, notice the readings kind of took both extremes, right? One woman past the age of childbearing, it's too late for her. One is still a virgin, has never known a man. It's too early for her. And God says, and? Yeah, and? Impossible? What's, what's impossible? I don't, know what, I don't know what that word means. Is anything, verse 14, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there any, can you really find impossible for God? I mean, this whole passage says God looking at us and saying nothing is impossible. Or for that matter, impossible, yeah, that's nothing. That's, that's nothing to me. You need children where there are none? Done. You need planets in a solar system that doesn't even exist yet? Done. You need giants removed from the promised land because this would have been Moses' original audience? Done. You need the church to grow? You need the kingdom to grow and expand. You need the gospel to take root in the lives of people. You need that hardened unbeliever brought to faith in Christ. Done. But that's impossible. You don't understand how sinful this guy is. You don't understand how committed to disobedience and, and wretchedness my blank is. My friend, my neighbor, my coworker, my cousin, my parents, my children. And nothing's impossible. Or for that matter, impossible, that's nothing. It's nothing for God. I will build my church. And the gates of hell cannot, shall not, stand against it. I've been saved. Oh, but I still wrestle with sin. But He promises to deliver me from that sin and to see me through, not just to bring me to faith in Christ, but to take me and sit me down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, fully and finally and completely rid of sin forever. Done. Yeah, but you don't, you don't know the sin rooted in my heart that my friends don't see. Done. Yeah, and nothing is impossible. Or, so that's impossible? It's nothing. Notice, though, verse 12. Two words. Sarah laughed to herself. Yahweh couldn't hear her. I said it that way on purpose. The man sitting at the table in the flesh, out there with Abraham, the, the one of the three, it's Yahweh and two angels. It's, it's God Himself in the flesh in, and two angels sitting there with Abraham. He's got his back to the tent. She laughed 
not out loud, not for everyone else to hear, to herself. Sometimes rebuke is also encouragement. Don't miss the grace of rebuke in your life. It's actually gracious for sin to be uncovered. Because then you can deal with it. Then you can address it. Then it's out and exposed for the gospel to work on. For your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you with. Don't miss the grace of rebuke. The Lord said to Abraham, verse 13, Why did Sarah laugh? I heard her laugh. She laughed. She laughed to herself, but I know she laughed. How do I know? Because I know everything. I know what she's doing. I know what she's saying. I'm aware of all of it. I keep it all right on the forefront of my mind. Sarah's rebuked. In fact, she's so rebuked, the last word she gets is the end of verse um, 15. No, but you did laugh. And boom, curtain on that scene. Because the next passage begins, the three men are leaving, Abraham's walking them to the door, as it were. Running around in the back of her mind, no, but you laughed. They'll name him Isaac, which means laughter. She's rebuked in this passage. For thinking that there is such a thing as impossible for God. And at the same time, that rebuke is also grace to her. If he knew I laughed, if he knows the secret, he can accomplish the impossible. If he knows the unknown, he can bring about the non existent. She's rebuked and encouraged at the same time. It's Hebrews 4. Everything's open and exposed and naked and laid bare before God. Nothing is hidden from His sight. He knows all. He can do all. Impossible is nothing. Nothing is impossible. What's the promise He's made to you? That you from time to time think, I'm just not so sure. What's the promise in God's Word that you have the hardest time really hanging on to? Is it the salvation of a loved one? Is it the growth of a particular church plant in Athens, Alabama? Is it your own sanctification? Is it the promise to that you will persevere to the end and actually be invited at that marriage supper and actually have a seat at that table? God promises to save sinners. He promises to preserve those He saves. He promises to sanctify sanctify us by His Word and His Spirit. 
He promises to deliver you to that great feast in heaven. Why would we laugh? Nothing's impossible. The impossible, it's nothing. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us. Impossible is not in your vocabulary. Your promises are yea and amen in Christ. Grant us the grace to trust your infinite, perfect knowledge, your infinite, sovereign power, and your grace even to us. Through Christ, we ask it all. Amen.